This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio. Uh, IAQ Radio Plus, episode number 521 this week. We've got a great show with Dr. Peter DiCarlo of Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're calling this one, What Can Catman Do? Teach Us About Home Chem. Uh, We'll fill you in on that in just a minute. Before we get started, though, we want to thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Patty Harmon, Cokiesville, Maryland, for correctly identifying three as the number of Category 5 storms to hit the continental United States. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, October 19, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's IQ Radio trivia question. What is timekeeping in Nepal based upon? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Dr. Peter DiCarlo is our guest today. He's an associate professor with an appointment in the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering and the Department of Chemistry at Drexel University. He is also an affiliate of Urban Health Collaborative in the School of Public Health at Trexel and an adjunct member of the Center for Excellence in Environmental Toxicology at the University of Pennsylvania. He has a Ph.D. in Atmospheric Science from the University of Colorado and a B.S. in Biochemistry from Notre Dame, but more recently he's been delving into the uh, indoor air quality and aerosols in indoor air and uh, the unique capabilities of the laboratory at Drexel there have also brought them into the home chem program, which we've talked about when we joined their open house. Uh, Dr. DiCarlo, do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Thanks Great for inviting me. Happy to be here. That's uh, our pleasure to have you. Um, I was told, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of the home chem folks and they said, you got to bring on Peter. He's, he's uh, excellent and uh, brings a unique perspective You've done a lot of work on air quality in general. Um, how did you get involved in the chemistry of indoor environments? So that goes to uh, when I started my position at Drexel. Um, I'm in an environmental engineering department, and most people are typically water people. So uh, I kind of teamed up with the other air guy in the department, Michael Waring, who's an expert at indoor air. And we started a collaboration where we took his expertise in indoor air and my expertise at that time in outdoor Air, uh, air quality, and tried to figure out ways to work together. Um, and we've been doing that ever since. So I, I really owe it to him to, to give him credit for bringing me to the indoor environment. And it's, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm just wondering, with, with respect to the outdoor air, um, how do you assess air quality in, in your group? I mean, I, I know we had the PM 2.5 monitors and the PM 10, but you're more in the chemistry side of things. Can you tell listeners a little bit about how you assess outdoor air and then how that's also going to um, lead into the indoor air quality conversation? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, The the workhorse instrument in my group for assessing um, the composition of of particles, which is kind of my focus in general, uh, is called an aerosol mass spectrometer. And that instrument and other instruments uh, that we use in my group 
uh, were typically developed for outdoor measure measurements. Um, but we've started using them indoors and there's just this increase of interest in the indoor air and increase in funding. Um, so my group and other groups that are traditionally outdoor groups have been starting to use these instruments that are uh, highly analytical, um, can go down to very, very low concentrations and give us a, a wealth of information about the composition of particles or gases in the, in the air um, are starting to use these indoors. And so um, these custom mass spectrometers that have been used probably for a couple decades now outdoors are really starting to make an impact indoors now too. I noticed the name of it is, um, or at least somewhere in the documentation, it was called a field deployable, high resolution, time of flight aerosol mass spectrometer. Um, field deployable, I get that. I guess you can take it out in an airplane or, or wherever you need to and, and you know, use it in the field. Uh, high resolution, what's time of flight? So, yeah, it's a lot of hyphens in there describing the instrument. Um, and and the, that was the title of the, the, the paper that we wrote on the instrument. And essentially, all of those things are important in um, understanding why this instrument is so useful. Uh, we, in the outdoor and, and now indoor air measurement, need to bring the instrument to where we want to measure. This instrument measures things in situ. So we pull air in directly into the instrument and get real-time feedback on, on the composition. So it's important that we can move it um, from place to place. That's the field deployable, which, you know, it's 500 pounds uh, ish roughly. So it's not super, super field deployable in the sense that you still need multiple people to move it around. Um, but you can plug it into a standard outlet. It has wheels. You can roll it around. Um, the high resolution time of flight aerosol, mass spec and the time of flight is the important thing. It's, it's a development that the original version of the instrument had what's called a quadrupole mass spec and it allows um, measuring the, the composition, but with the time of flight mass spec um, added to the instrument and swapped out, we can get much more sensitive measurements. And so we're going down to nanograms per cubic meter in terms of different compositions of the aerosol, which is why we were able to um, also, I've, I've deployed it in Antarctica, where it's probably the cleanest place I've ever measured. Um, but we were able to actually measure things um, in that environment with this very sensitive instrument. Interesting. And you, you've taken this instrument around uh, quite a bit. I know that um, on your CV, there was a Department of State Air Quality Fellow for the U.S. Embassy in Nepal. Um, could you tell listeners about what that, you know, what that position is responsible for first and then what you were doing in Nepal. And that's what brought in the Kathmandu reference in the title. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to, uh, just a little bit ba of background. Um, the uh, U S state department has started measuring air quality at, at many of their embassies around the world. And this is to inform the employees who work there uh, for the U S government about kind of the air quality in those regions and, and in particular for their families so that they're, just aware. Um, so as part of that program, the, they've added this fellows component, which is, it's not paid, it's, it's a volunteer position, but it links um, researchers with the embassies who can then help those embassies interpret the data or actively help them with projects that, are, that they're working on in regards to the air quality that's being measured. So for me, um, I uh, have a National Science Foundation project where we're measuring air quality in Nepal. Um, and so it was a, a natural fit for me to work with the embassy there as well. And so one of the things that I worked on, um, they wrote, recently rolled out an app um, called Safahawa, which um, means uh, clean air. And I helped them with that, that rollout. So they have an app for phones that gives you real-time updates on what the air quality is based on the measurements that are being made. I mean, Nepal's a mountainous area, as I, as I understand it, and I'm wondering, how is the outdoor air quality in Nepal? Is it good, bad, and different? I mean, I mean, depending on the season, it's, um, it, it can change pretty dramatically. The, um, the wintertime aerosol loadings are typically the worst, so the, the particles in the air. So I'm probably going to mix aerosol and particle back and forth, um, okay. essentially the same thing. Um, that's, that's a key point, though. That you're, essentially, you're using part, particle, particulate, and aerosol as essentially the same thing. Yes. Um, uh, so 
apologize. I'll try to try to be consistent. Um, and so for, yeah, for air quality, we typically refer to it as particulate matter. And the loadings are highest generally in Nepal in the winter. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons. It's the dry season. Um, so there's not much precipitation, which can clean the atmosphere. There's more burning of solid fuel for heating. Um, the atmosphere can trap the pollution a little bit more. And so all of the pollution sources are kind of in full swing and you have atmospheric conditions that can kind of keep those concentrations high. Uh, in the monsoon season, you have the lowest uh, air quality issues, um, but you still don't quite get to the levels that we see in the U.S. typically for, for clean air. And that's just because the, the sources aren't as well controlled. Um, there's things like brick kilns and agricultural burning, which can contribute pretty significantly to the, the air quality. I see. And what about indoor air quality um, issues in Nepal? I guess the cook stoves are one of the big ones. Uh, what else? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we were focused mostly on our measurements, looking at the, the emissions from cook stoves. That was one of the one um, areas of indoor air that we, we looked at in our, in our study. Um, but just being there, um, my students purchased a air filtration system um, for when they were staying in the apartments and, you know, as, as the concentration of outdoor air increases, some of that does penetrate to the indoor environment. And so you want to, you know, clean the air that you're spending the most time breathing. And so um, just from the fact of being there, we, we had these issues that we had to think about. And so most of, you know, in the absence of, of sources, just penetration of outdoor air that's pretty, pretty highly polluted into the indoor environment is, is one of the largest concerns. Cliff, I want to make sure that, did you have anything you wanted to add on? I'm still writing the answer to the last question. Okay. All right. Cliff's going his blog too. So just so you know, he may, uh, may not have much to, to say, but he's certainly writing and listening. I, I want to talk a little bit more about how um, understanding what happens with aerosols outdoors helps with understanding them indoors. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering if you could, maybe explain to listeners why you got involved, how you got involved with the indoors. We talked a little bit about that earlier, but why is understanding the outdoors so important to the indoors? So, I mean, I, th I think, you know, this was a, a bit of a wake up call for me when I started to think about it. Um, we justify all this outdoor air quality research that has been very well funded. We have regulations looking at outdoor air um, by looking at how outdoor air pollution can impact health. And so we, see increased uh, mortality with higher air pollution loadings. We see respiratory problems, asthma, all sorts of things with, with outdoor air, and they're well correlated. Um, and then you take a step back and you realize that, you know, I'm not spending more than two and a half hours outside. Most of my day, over 90% of my day is spent indoors. And so my exposure to outdoor air pollutants is predominantly happening in the indoor environment. And so understanding what happens outdoors and then how that air pollution eventually makes it into the indoor environment where we are being exposed to it is, is something that's really important. And this is the, the work that I've been doing here with, with Dr. Michael Waring. And you did a presentation at, I think at in, indoor air 2018, I've got the, the, the title was human impact to indoor air quality. And as I understand it, much of what you discussed was, um, the human occupant's contribution to the secondary aerosol mass in indoor environments. So to, to talk about that first, I guess we need to break out, break down what, what is secondary aerosol mass? So that's a, that's a great question. So when we think of aerosols, they can either be directly emitted into the atmosphere or the air. Um, and we call those primary. So, you know, a great example is if you're driving behind a truck or a bus and you see that kind of plume of black smoke come out, that's a lot of black carbon and it's primary. It's, it's a direct emission to the atmosphere. Secondary aerosol mass are things that are emitted in the gas phase. So they're not in the particulate phase initially, but through reactions in the atmosphere that tend to oxidize those things, they become uh, low enough vapor pressure that they want to actually partition into the aerosol and become part of the aerosol mass. And so there's chemistry that has, has to occur in the atmosphere to get those gas phase species then to partition into the particle phase. And that's what the secondary organic aerosol mass is. It's things that end up in the aerosol phase, but started out in the gas phase. 
Can you give us an example from humans? Yeah. So, I mean, the presentation that you referenced, um, we are, we have been looking at, um, in addition to what comes in from outside, what are the indoor sources? And we were able to look at, you know, increases in carbon dioxide levels, which are approximation for when people are present. Um, along with those increases in CO2 levels, we saw a decrease in ozone or an increase in the reactivity of ozone um, coming in from outside. And we were able to link that increased CO2 and that more reactive ozone with an enhancement in a chemical signature in the aerosol phase, which looks like skin oil reactions with ozone, and then those vapors partitioning into the, um, into the aerosol phase. And so what we're seeing in that, um, in that study is that the more people you have and the more skin oils that are in the room, those are reactive species that can eventually get mass into the indoor particulates. Yeah, that's interesting. I think most of us indoor air quality people think of the human impact on indoor air quality through our activities, um, mm -hmm. uh, mopping, cleaning, cooking, etc. It sounds like um, you're actually looking at uh, not just that, but um, what happens merely because of our presence, the, the fact that we expel CO2, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right, and you guys are correct to focus on activities like cooking and cleaning um, because those tend to be much larger sources of mass to the indoor environment. That being said, if you're in a movie theater and there's – ozone outside, it's a, you know, daytime matinee or something. Um, and you got a bunch of people in a small room. It's, it's possible that some of the contributions from the human emissions are going to be, are going to be large, but that's kind of more of a specialized case. I think in general, the largest concentrations that we see in the indoor environment are definitely due to cooking, cleaning, smoking. Um, okay. And so what's the takeaway for the field professionals from this work? I mean, how important is that? human impact on indoor air quality sounds like not that big of a deal when compared to the other things we do. Yeah. So the, the room that we were making measurements at, at Drexel is a classroom. And so there's no cooking source. Um, cleaning is done after hours, but during those, those times when there were occupants in that room, that mass from the human contribution made up roughly 10% of the indoor particulate matter mass. And so the majority of it, 90% or so came from outdoors, 10% uh, addition from indoors. You know, and I think what's interesting is the way particles change as, as they go from inside to outside or as they are in contact with the humans uh, within the building or our, our secondary um, contribution to the indoor environment, I guess. Um, the, there's an interesting topic it was called, I think it was a paper, the particulate matter size and composition change in response from transport from outdoors to the indoor environment. And there was a great presentation on that at the National Institute of Health PM 2.5 and Health Conference. Um, I guess what are some of the key points people, you know, IEQ people should understand about how particles change as they go from outside to inside? I just find that fascinating that they do change at all and then you know how do they change and tell listeners a little bit more about why that might be important yeah no exactly this was the the motivation for that initial study that that i did with with dr michael waring and you know fundamentally as i mentioned most of our exposure to outdoor pollutants happens in the indoor environment but if you think about it there's temperature gradients between the outdoor and indoor environment those change seasonally the HVAC operation, whether it be heating or cooling, is going to mirror that change in, in temperature gradient. Um, and something that we know from all of our work in the outdoor environment is that a lot of the chemicals inside of the outdoor particulates are what we call semi-volatile. So they go back and forth between the particle and gas phase, depending on the temperature. And so with that understanding, in the summertime, when you go from a hot outdoor environment to a cold indoor environment, you're dropping the temperature, which can further encourage some of these semi-volatile species to go into the particle phase. Um, in the wintertime, it's reversed. It's cold outside. It's warm inside. And one of the main species we see often in, in Philadelphia in the winter is what we call ammonium nitrate. And I like to say that's a mix of cars and cows. Um, hmm. 
ammonia from the cows and the, and the NOx, which makes the nitrate from the, from the cars. And that's known to be a semi-volatile species. And so when that comes indoors, about 90% of it evaporates. Um, so we see additional loss as that gets transported indoors because it's warmer inside than outside. Um, and so these temperature, the relative humidity gradients, how the HVAC is operating, um, all can influence the composition of the particles as they're transported from outdoors to indoors. And again, we're looking at a mechanically ventilated building. Um, it's a classroom building. And so we're actively pulling air from outside. We're filtering that air. And so it's going to be a little bit different potentially for a residence um, that isn't actively pulling air from outside. But in, if there's penetration into the indoor environment, there's going to be similar temperature gradients and things like that. So some of those concepts should still apply. And some of these aerosols, I guess, are, are captured by the building envelope as they come through, but maybe not as much as we think. I don't know. I mean, is there any, do you have any idea on how much gets through the building envelope versus comes in with the mechanical system? So for, so I was actually just doing a comparison of our, our work here at Drexel and our home chem results. Um, and so home chem was a residence. And so it wasn't actively pulling outdoor air. Um, and we, we saw higher penetration in the home chem house than we've seen here at Drexel with the mechanical ventilation and recirculation. Um, so the rough numbers are something like one third of the outdoor aerosol concentration we observe indoors at Drexel um, in our classroom with the recirculation. And in Texas at the test house uh, on UT's campus, we saw roughly two thirds of the outdoor concentration in the indoor environment. Um, hmm. And here we're looking at, at aerosol sulfate, um, which is a species that is not volatile um, and so all of the losses are really going to be those mechanical depositional losses in the building envelope or in a filter or something like that. And I guess a lot depends on what you're looking at and, and how much of that would get through and how much would be captured. Uh, you've got particle size, you've got the composition, et cetera. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. And we're very, focused mostly on the submicron. So particles less than one micron in diameter. And just for reference, I mean, I don't have hair, but um, most people's hair is roughly uh, about, 100 uh, microns in diameter. So we're looking at particles that are, you know, 100 times smaller than the width of your hair and smaller um, is, is what our focus is. Okay. All right, let's, you mentioned home chem. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with home chem and, you know, making measurements of aerosols, you know, composition in, in, in indoor environments. I noticed, too, one of the uh, one of the folks we interviewed down at the uh, open house, uh, she came from an outdoor atmospheric background as well. Um, yeah, so so home chem is a is a fantastic uh, project that is kind of modeled after what we do often in the outdoor community, where we try to bring a bunch of people together to measure everything we can think of um, and try to really understand the the chemistry of what's going on. Um, I was invited uh, to participate by the PIs of the project. So uh, Dr. Marina Vance and Dr. Delphine Farmer. Marina's at uh, CU and Delphine's at CSU. And based on the work that, that I've been doing here at Drexel, um, looking at the compositional change from outdoors to indoors um, and through meetings and things like that, I was, uh, I was kind of embedded in the, in the community and I got, you know, I got the call to, to participate. And it was, uh, it was great to get that. It's, it's, um, it's always really fun to be in these large collaborative projects. Um, everyone wants to try to understand things and, and you just get a lot of really good discussions and really good scientists getting together and trying to figure out uh, different things of, of what's going on. And so, um, yeah, I think it was just fortunate that I'd already started down this path um, and uh, getting recognized and, and asked to, to make these measurements now in the, in the larger context of home chem was, was great for my group. Delphine was the one that was in the outdoor uh, world prior to coming in, and it's similar to your background, I guess. Yes. Uh, how many people were working on that? I mean, ballpark idea, you've got 10, 20, 50? Of, I mean, so Delphine actually did her postdoc in the research group that I did my PhD in. Um, and so we overlapped a little bit with uh, Dr. Jose Jimenez at Colorado. Um, and uh, we knew each other through that and through the outdoor community. 
Um, in terms of doing experimental work outdoors, you know, there's probably several hundred researchers um, doing that uh, in the U.S. Um, overall, atmospheric scientists, there's, you know, the, the numbers that I always hear is about 5,000 atmospheric scientists. Um, some of those are modelers, other things, and about 2,000 of those are in Boulder. Um, oh, really? Yeah, which is why I just every all roads lead to Boulder in the outdoor world. Um, and so, but in terms of, of making these types of measurements outdoors, it is a really, it is a relatively small community. Um, and because we have all these outdoor campaigns, a lot of people know each other and have worked with each other um, during their PhD, their postdoc. And then as some of those people get faculty positions, they continue those um, working relationships. And I, I guess part of the reason that you were brought in was um, the capabilities that you have at Drexel. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Maybe you could just kind of tell listeners a little bit more about why they chose to bring your group in at Drexel and, and what capabilities you have that were really helpful to them. Yeah. So, I mean, we have the, the aerosol mass spectrometer that, that we talked about before. Um, we're not the only groups that have that. Um, but we're one of the only groups that actually has used it extensively in the indoor environment. And I think one of the things that's really, um, really been important for me is learning how different in many ways the indoor environment is to the outdoor environment. What are those differences? It's not, um, it's not as straightforward as just saying, I'm going to turn on the instrument and make, start making measurements indoors. There's a lot of subtle things that, that are, I didn't truly appreciate until I started trying to make these measurements. And so we've done four indoor outdoor measurements at Drexel um, looking at the indoor and outdoor concentrations simultaneously. And I think each time we improved something because we learned from all our experiences, things that we weren't doing as well as we should have been or other things. So there's a learning curve to being able to transition from the outdoor to the indoor environment. And I think um, our experience helped us um, get that call to, to participate in home chem. And how expensive is this piece of equipment we're talking about? Just a ballpark idea for listeners. It's on the order of a half million dollars. Um, and there were several other flavors of, of similar instruments down at home chem. So I think the overall total was something like four and a half million dollars of instrumentation um, making measurements uh, during home chem. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Okay, I, I think what we want to do here is we're going to break for halftime, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the papers uh, that your students are presenting next week and, and get a little more detail on the home chem project. We'll be back with the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Peter DiCarlo out of Drexel, and uh, we're, we're talking about uh, the home chem project, and uh, somehow Katmandu got, uh, got brought into the discussion as well. We'll be right back. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. All right, we're back. Second half of our interview, we've got Dr. Peter DiCarlo. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the the poster. Oh, before I do, Cliff, did you have any um, anything you wanted to add before we go to the second half? 
No, I, I think just one thing that, that, that struck me was this, you know, reaction with, uh, you know, human body oils. And I was just thinking about, it's probably not a good idea that I fry these turkeys indoors after hearing that. <laughs> uh, probably not. But I, and they've done that at home, Kim, haven't they? Uh done some cooking. I think they cooked a Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know if they fried it, but uh, they cooked it at, uh, at the test house. Yeah, there were, uh, there were two Thanksgivings cooked during, uh, during June in Texas. So uh, fake Thanksgivings or mock Thanksgivings. Um, but yeah, we, uh, my student actually was one of the uh, quote iron chefs during the, uh, the Thanksgiving day, day cooking. And so no, definitely. Um, some interesting results. We did not fry them. They were, they were in the oven, um, baked and basted. Um, but yeah, frying a turkey indoors is probably going to release a lot of indoor particles. Well, what happens is the reason my wife got it, she was afraid I was going to set the house on fire with a propane one. So she bought this one that you use uh, indoors. And, and I think it's okay, you know, while it's cooking, but you know, once, once it's over, and mm-hmm. you know, you, you open it up. You know, you, you do get uh, you do get kind of a plume that comes out of there. So yeah. have those <laughs> have those vent fans on full blast. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the two papers. Um, let's see. The first one I think is uh, factors affecting indoor ammonia concentrations during home chem uh, by Laura. Ampolini, I believe, is part of your group. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that paper? Yeah, so that um, was a new measurement that we've uh, not done before. But um, in, in some of our earlier studies, we, we thought ammonia might be really important uh, during in, in the indoor environment. And so I uh, have a, a good relationship with an instrument uh, company, and they let us borrow a pretty sensitive ammonia instrument um, to the Picaro uh, cavity ring down system, which can measure ammonia down to, you know, um, low parts per billion levels. And so we had that making measurements indoors in real time. And the poster by, by Lara is looking into some of these, these measurements and what are the factors that can influence the ammonia concentration that we measure indoors. There's a lot of ammonia indoors. Um, you know, outdoors, if, if you hit five parts per billion, it's pretty high. Um, typically on the order of one to two parts per billion outside our baseline indoor concentration with no one present um, was around 30 to 40 parts per billion um, of ammonia. So we're talking, you know, six to 10 times higher uh, than the average outdoor concentrations. With no one present, what what is that coming from? So I think initially, I mean, we emit ammonia, ammonia is very sticky. And so it's just going to collect in the indoor environment, um, go to surfaces and then we did notice that it, um, it comes off of those surfaces. So the indoor temperature, the higher the indoor temperature, uh, the higher the concentration of ammonia. And there's a very strong um, relationship between increasing temperature and increasing ammonia concentrations that we noted during the, the home chem campaign. Are there any uh, standards, outdoor standards, for ammonia concentrations in outdoor environment? Um, there aren't. Uh, specifically criteria pollutant standards for ammonia, but ammonia um, contributes pretty significantly to outdoor particulate matter. Um, So it's the counter ion that helps ammonium sulfate uh, form and go into the aerosol phase and ammonium nitrate as well. Uh, So high outdoor concentrations of ammonia can contribute to poor air quality. And there's been some outdoor studies um, focused on that in particular, Utah and the Salt Lake region has um, a lot of feedlots and so the agricultural and the cattle emissions of ammonia can contribute pretty st- significantly to poor air quality, especially in the wintertime in those areas. And they, they con- it contributes by, through the particulate? Yes. So ammonia will combine with um, an acid gas, and so nitric acid or sulfuric acid, things that are components of acid rain. Um, if ammonia is present, it's a base. It will react with those acids. And then it forms a species that is too um, non-volatile to stay in the gas phase, and it will go into the particulate phase uh, where it will add to that particulate mass. And so in the wintertime, we typically see 
in Philadelphia even that the largest contributions to outdoor uh, particulates are ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate. Hmm. Interesting. I never knew that. That's, uh, what do you think? What's the implications with indoor air? Because you're saying five is high, five parts per billion, I believe, was high outdoors. You were getting 30 um, mm-hmm. indoors without any activity. Um, what, what kind of implications would there be? Would it be particulate or could there be some other issue? I mean, it can certainly drive chemistry, and this is, you know, this gets into some other work that we've done, um, but ammonia can also serve to remove other species from surfaces, um, so residual tobacco smoke and things like that. But, I mean, from the chemistry of indoor environments perspective, when you talk about concentrations that are 10 times higher than outdoors, it opens up new avenues of chemistry that can happen. Um, and so, you know, there are other groups, I think, um, Delphine Farmers Group at CSU has, has a poster next week that's looking at some of these uh, reactions between chlorine species from mopping with bleach and ammonia and how those can um, react together and have some interesting chemistry happen. And so um, in addition to just being higher, it, it means that some of those reactions are, are more favorable to happen in the indoor environment than they would be outdoors. Um, and so, yeah, there's, I think there's still a lot to learn and hopefully home chem is going to give us some really good insights on what ammonia can do. And, and to your, just to, to add one more layer to that, the uh, highest concentrations for ammonia we saw were when we cleaned with ammonia and it got up to almost a part per million. So that's another few orders of magnitude higher than outdoors. Um, and then just with people being present, you mentioned being there for the open house. Um, for non-cleaning concentrations, the open house got us up to 100 parts per billion um, hmm. of ammonia. And that was just people going in and out of the house uh, during that, that time. Interesting. Peter, when you, were cleaning with, when you were cleaning with the ammonia, is that what you were cleaning with, you know, ammonia and water? Or yeah. were you cleaning, okay, ammonia and water. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, let's, let's look at this other one. Um, Turkey toast and particles, <laughs> chemical characterization of PM1 emissions during cooking events. Uh, this was Aaron Katz in your group. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was this all about? And, you know, what are some of the interesting early findings? So, yeah, this is uh, mostly about the cooking emissions. And so, as I mentioned, um, that's one of the largest sources of particulates in the indoor environment, especially when people no longer smoke inside. Um, and so the turkey obviously refers to the, the two Thanksgiving dinners that were, were cooked in, in June. Um, toast, the toaster oven is, is one way that you can cook things. And so we actually see some chemical signatures that are a little bit different when we use the toaster oven. Um, and then the particles um, that we see, there was also stir frying that occurred, but it didn't, you know, didn't rhyme as much. The alliteration wasn't as all, all there, but um, so Aaron is looking at the emissions from these different activities, what the composition looks like. We have with the mass spectrometer kind of a fingerprint of the chemistry or the chemical composition of those, those emissions. And that helps us understand what components are there. It does look like there are some um, interesting uh, off gassing that's occurring uh, when we use the oven. Um, And we're still trying to figure out what's going on with that, but there are certainly Changes, I think the, the main chemical signature that we see looks a lot like oil. Um, so when you cook and you use oil, that volatilizes. And then when it cools back down, you know, it started as a liquid at room temperature, it's going to want to form particles again. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is just that volatilization of the oil and the recondensation into, into the particulate phase. Um, and that's what a lot of the, the signal looks like chemically. Do- I don't recall, do they have um, an exhaust vent above the stove in there? Um, the decision at the time was made to not use it, um, to look kind of more at, you know, worst case scenario in some sense. Um, so we were not actively venting outside. The stove was also a, um, a propane stove. So it was a combustion stove and that increased things like NOx concentrations and some ultrafine particles were also emitted from that um, combustion process. Okay, interesting. Um, and I think it's not just 
worst case, it's a pretty common case that people don't. <laughs> if they even have one to start with. Um, yeah, my wife gets mad at me, but I've convinced her to uh, to use the exhaust fan when she's cooking. And, and we have two little boys, and so she uh, she does it for them, she says. <laughs> All right, Cliff, any follow-ups on that? Nope, good. All right, I've got the next paper I wanted to ask you about here, and it's uh, seasonal variation in the composition of outdoor to indoor transported submicron aerosols. Um, a little bit of a mouthful, but um, I think most listeners are you know aware of what transported submicron aerosols are. Did you find a great deal of seasonal variation? We did, and I think the seasonal variation um, applies – in, in two different ways. The, the summertime aerosol composition in Philadelphia is different than the wintertime aerosol composition in Philadelphia in, in the outdoor environment. Um, and that has to do with a variety of, of different things. The photochemistry in the summertime with the sun being more intense and there being more daylight hours and the fact that there's more active plant life emitting volatile species we get a very different chemical mix in the outdoor particulates um, in the summer. In the wintertime, as I mentioned before, ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate are these inorganic species which tend to be roughly half of the aerosol then, uh, whereas in the summertime, they're only about a, a quarter. Um, and so you get a, a chemical change between the seasons. And so that's one reason the seasonal thing is important. And the other thing, as I mentioned before, we heat in the wintertime and we cool in the summertime. And mm -hmm. so the difference in how we run our HVAC affects that composition and how things come in. And in particular with the AC running and the cooling coil going, things get wet and that actually can change some of the chemistry of the, of the indoor aerosol as well. Um, the, the wet surfaces in the HVAC system can absorb or absorb some of those, those water soluble gases and change that, that dynamic um, between the gas phase and the particle phase. So when did you see more, Submicron particles, was there a particular time of the year or um, time of the day even? So in, in terms of kind of using sulfate as our, as our tracer, we actually saw similar um, penetration of outdoor air to the indoor environment um, in both seasons. What we saw were different sources um, indoors in the different seasons. Um, and so in the wintertime is when we – so in the summertime, Drexel doesn't have – many classes in the classroom we were sampling and was pretty much unoccupied. So we didn't see that human um, contribution that we mentioned earlier uh, in the, in the summertime. Um, in the wintertime, we did see that. Um, however, in the summertime, we, we also saw this residual tobacco smoke um, that, you know, has been something that totally surprised us uh, considering making measurements in a non-smoking building. We saw this chemical signature of residual smoke that, um, made almost 30% of the indoor aerosol. Um, so a little mm -hmm. bit more than I would expect um, in any case. I think than most anyone would expect 30%. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, well, that kind of leads us into the next topic anyway. Um, you know, we hear a lot about third-hand smoke um, in the last, I don't know, five, ten years anyway, um, indoors and, and how important. Uh, well, first, Give us an idea how, how important you think indoor uh, third-hand smoke exposure, I guess, is. I mean, I think that's, that's an active area of research. And, um, you know, for the most part, in this last five to ten years, as you mentioned, this has become a, re a recognized issue. Um, most of the work looking at exposure has focused primarily on things like dermal uptake, um, so absorption through the skin, um, this makes sense in most, in, in like a smoker's home where you're sitting on couches, um, especially with children who might be crawling on the floor, putting toys in their mouth. There's also the oral exposure. Um, what we found was this residual smoke is actually off gassing, getting into the particulates. And then it's something that you could also breathe in. And so this is just another route of exposure, um, that, that we have now to third hand smoke. And getting to your question, I think the health impacts and what I've seen, most of this has been done on mouse models, right? Because we can't, you know, actively give people exposure to third-hand smoke. Um, but in these mouse models, what they're seeing is respiratory problems similar to what you get with secondhand smoke, um, reduction in growth. So mouse mice that are 
exposed to surfaces that have this residual cigarette smoke don't grow as well as mice that aren't. Um, so in, in general, a lot of the similar health impacts that you expect for secondhand smoke um, and direct exposure to, to tobacco smoke are being seen with, with third-hand exposure. And, and I think this is an area that's um, getting a lot more active. And so I think the next few years are going to give us even more information on this. Yeah, and I'll, I'll bet it's, I suspect it will get a lot more active too in, in the world of people doing performing indoor air quality assessments, especially during, for instance, uh, um, home inspections on a transfer of real estate. You know, you've got kids that have asthma and you're trying to avoid uh, that third hand smoke. Um, is there, a, I'm just trying to figure out, I mean, is there any way of, you know, obviously smoking, not good for you. Secondhand smoke, you're, you're directly inhaling that, that smoke that came from that person. The thirdhand smoke, though, it, it seems like that's kind of, it should be down the list a little bit of concerns, but maybe I'm misunderstanding. I mean, just from a personal standpoint, my wife and I recently bought a house a few years ago. And, you know, in our looking for houses, there were a couple of houses we went into that you could actually smell you know, to a low level, they were trying to like cover it up with some fragrances, but you could smell the residual tobacco smoke and we walked into the house and walked straight out. I mean, it, it was not something that we wanted and, and certainly not our, our two little kids to be exposed to. So um, I, I think you're right. I think trying to incorporate this into some kind of um, home inspection when they do those, you know, that should be a checkbox too. Is this, you know, residence been smoked in significantly or not in the last by the previous owner. Um, I think as we learn more about third-hand smoke, maybe that becomes something that has to be looked at. Um, but, but I don't know. Um, so that's a tough question. I mean, and then the other issue becomes, and Cliff is much, uh, probably more knowledgeable than, than I or anyone on this or others. Um, there's the cleaning up of it. Can it be, appropriately cleaned have you ever looked at anything like that i mean you know can we can we get that third hand smoke effectively cleaned from the surfaces in a home when you're going to let's say you were going to buy it from your you know for you and your your children um you know i can tell you from our personal experience with this third hand smoke measurement that we did in our lab um, we smoked a cigarette into, not personally, we used a pump to pull cigarette smoke into a Pyrex container. So glass and so not something that's not even very, um, absorbing. It's really just going to be on the surface. And we ran a bunch of tests on that residual tobacco smoke. When my student cleaned out the glass jar with soap and water and a brush, um, and then tried to run a blank experiment. So we did the same thing thinking that the jar was clean it wasn't clean. It still had that residual smoke in it. She had to use acid um, to clean the glass to get um, that residual smoke out of the jar. Um, so it's, it's sticky. It's not something that's easy to clean by any means. Um, and perhaps we can expo exploit some of the chemistry of, of the, the third-hand smoke that, that we observed and the fact that there's a lot of acids and base reactions that can happen to better clean it. But it's... Um, it, it was, it was sticky in a glass jar. So it's going to be even harder to get out of things like carpeting and, and paint and things that actually can absorb and absorb some of that. Yeah, you've got a mechanical system where you, you know, there's not easy access to it. Cliff, any, any thoughts on that? You know, my thoughts, I'm not sure what was in the cleaner that was used. It would seem to me that uh, my approach would have probably been to use a solvent, you know, whether it's uh you know, ethanol or uh, glycol ether or something like that, that, you know, should just cut that stuff uh, right off. But again, uh, not, not sure exactly what happened. I've certainly cleaned a lot of homes and cars and vehicles that have, uh, you know, had a lot of smoking in them, uh, you know, with no complaint. Well, if you, if you think that secondhand or thirdhand smoke is an issue, then you probably really have an issue with a home that had suffered a fire. You know, I've got a couple texts here I want to run by you. Um, forget third-hand smoke. Uh, whoop, I lost it there. Forget third-hand smoke. How about third-hand exposure to vaping emissions? Any thoughts on that? <laughs> we are actively looking at that right now and hopefully more results to come. But, yes, that's certainly an issue. I think vaping, especially, I mean, I'm at a university. Um, 
vaping is very popular among the, the undergrad population here and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it done indoors. And so you don't find people smoking nearly to the extent that they used to indoors, but vaping certainly is something that is done indoors. And so there can be, and we do see some residual effects similar to, to tobacco smoke, but it's chemically very different than combustible tobacco. Um, and so we're trying to figure out what those, some of those differences are. Okay. And then the, the next text was, how would residual smoke be cleaned from the interior of a house? And I think, Cliff, you, you touched on that. I don't know if you want to add any more. No, I think that, you know, typically uh, it, it takes, you know, thorough cleaning. You know, a lot of, you know, from experience, it seems that the majority of the vapor, uh, you know, when it's warm, you know, has a tendency to rise up and, you know, it's going to coat ceilings. It's going to coat, uh, you know, vertical surfaces and it, it builds up over time. You know, what a lot of people don't think of is the quantity. You know, when I was smoking, you know, I would smoke a pack and a half a day. That's 30 cigarettes. My wife would smoke a pack and a half a day. So 60 cigarettes a day, you know, multiply that times 30 days, uh, you know, in a month and and multiply that times 10 years. And, you know, it's it's not unusual to have, you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of cigarettes that, you know, that were smoked, uh, you know, in that environment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, what, what I think we're going to do, I've got an, another text question or two, and I've got one or two questions of my own to wrap this up, but let's go to our roundup, John. It's the 2018 Healthy Building Summit, October 25th through the 27th at Seven Springs Mountain Resort in the gorgeous Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania. Network and practitioners, prominent researchers, and industry leaders in an intimate and informal setting. This year's theme is IEQ, Remediation and Restoration, Research to Practice. This is the only industry event that performs live research and links researchers and practitioners. Marquee sponsors include Hayward Score, Helping People Live Healthier Lives, and Particles Plus. Count on us. All right. Thanks. We're back with our guest today, Dr. Peter DiCarlo. Great stuff. This has been really interesting. Um, a little different twist on the indoor environment for us here. Uh, you know, we're normally talking a lot about microbial issues and, uh, you know, we hear a lot about formaldehyde and things like that, but you don't hear often about ammonia uh, issues in, in indoor environments. This has been really interesting. I also have a, um, a question here from a listener about indoor auto pollution, um, uh, indoor auto pollution in cars, the gray stuff that shows up on the inside of the window. Uh, people who get into very hot cars with the windows closed breathe all kinds of emissions. I guess that's a comment more than a question. I don't know if you wanted to comment on that or not. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's something that, that we are exploring in, in, um, projects like home chem where we do look at the different temperatures and try to understand that, that partitioning. It's something that we think a lot about outdoors. Um, it drives a lot of the interaction between the gas phase and the particle phase and how volatile things are. So yeah, certainly if you heat a car up, um, well above hundred degrees, you're going to get more chemical species to volatilize in that time. And then when you sit back down in that car, um, those in the gas phase can then, you can breathe them in, um, they can partition onto particles and, and um, can be another form of a root of exposure. So it's certainly um, something to think about. And, you know, all of, all of what we do is, is governed in some sense by the chemistry that's occurring around us. Speaking of that chemistry, well, first, I've got another text I want to read um, about reading about cleaning third-hand smoke. They recommend sugar soap. Uh, Cliff, what is that? Any idea? Not sure. I was Googling it, and uh, one of the things that came up, uh, you know, it said that it was a powerful household cleaner, and then uh, I looked at what what is it made from, and it came up as sodium carbonate, which is, I don't understand what the relationship between sodium carbonate, which is commonly used as a filler, you know, in a lot of things, laundry detergents, et cetera, uh, you know, w- would be in there. So not, not really sure. I'll do some research and I'll put it into the blog. All right. Any, any thoughts on that, Dr. DiCarlo? <laughs> um, honestly, we haven't, we haven't done a, a thorough deep dive into the best ways to clean uh, residual tobacco smoke, but it's certainly something we can add to the list if we want to try to clean our, our jars in the lab. Um, I, will, I will look into that. 
All right. And then let's let's wrap this up here. I've got a couple quick ones, and this might take a minute. First, I'd like to ask if you could. We, we, you know, we're in the we have a lot of listeners that do restoration after fire, after uh, floods, after oh, meth lab decontamination, you name it. Our, our listeners have to deal with that. Now fentanyl decontamination is just, you know, one thing after another. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, they're, they're oftentimes told by manufacturers that ozone and or hydroxyl can, can help with uh, particularly odors uh, after these, you know, um, when when doing this type of cleaning, I wonder if you could just touch a little on the, the chemistry of ozone and hydroxyls in indoor environments. That's a that's a good question. I um you know this isn't my field in terms of, of indoor cleaning, but my understanding and, and knowledge of kind of about about indoor o- or oxidants in general, ozone and OH, um, those are really going to react with things in the gas phase. So you might be able to react away those odors that are in the gas phase. But if the issue is, you know, the walls and the surfaces and, and the odors kind of off gassing from that, then it seems like you'd want to treat that in some way, not necessarily the air. You can always ventilate and, and exchange all the air pretty quickly in, in an indoor environment. But um, if those odors are coming from surfaces, it seems like that's where you'd really want to treat. And, and I don't think the OH or the ozone reactions in the gas phase are really going to do that. Okay. Cliff, anything you'd like to add? Uh, I, I would agree. I think, I really think he was spot on. It's really about the residue. That's typically what, you know, what's carrying the odor and emitting it, particularly over the long periods of time. And you really need to deal with source removal. And, you know, if you're not going to deal with source removal, you're not going to resolve the problem. And I mean, it should be a hint when you take a hundred of these machines and you have to put them in a building for weeks or months at a time, <laughs> they're really not working efficiently that uh, you could do something else that would probably be much better and much faster. I think sometimes people would rather rent equipment than clean. Uh, unfortunately. Understood. Uh, but anyway, Dr. DiCarlo, let me, I got one more question than we always like to ask uh, if there's anything you'd like to add. But this one is more about kind of putting on the, you know, your, getting your crystal ball out here um, and kind of looking into the future. You know, there's a lot happening more, more than I realized with these aerosols or particles. You know, we always think of a particle kind of as a, you know, non-indestructible kind of thing, you know, that doesn't change all that much. But I'm getting the impression from you that that's just not the case, that, that they do change. Um, and, and what can you tell listeners to watch for in the future? What are the things that you and the other uh, people working on the indoor environment and the home chem project, what are the kind of topics that really have your interest peaked and that, that you think might be more important than maybe we realize at this point? That's a, that's a great question. I think I'm still in the process of learning. Um, you know, I've been doing these types of experiments now just for five to seven years uh, with, with Michael Waring here, and I'm, I'm learning every day. I guess that makes me, what, a first grader, I guess, in terms of my understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I always try to think of the simple to the most complex, and I think in the simplest case, when you don't have indoor sources, what we're seeing with particles in the indoor environment is that they're originating from outside. And we just have to think about those temperature gradients and things like that and how those can affect the composition. Once we start adding people and those people's activities, that's when things get more and more complicated and from in the, in the particle sense. And then how we interact with our environment, what's coming off of surfaces that can get into the particle phase, the residual tobacco smoke, things like that. Um, and I think with these experiments like home chem, we're really, learning a lot very quickly. Um, But if there's one thing I've also learned in the time that I've been working on this is that no two indoor environments are alike. And so we're doing a a very deep dive into a test house in Austin, Texas in the summertime. Um, And we're going to learn a lot, but how does that compare to a house in the Pacific Northwest where it's a lot wetter, even -hmm. in the summertime or the wintertime or and so I think, you know, we're going to be looking in, the, in this area for a very long time um, and building up our knowledge and, and hopefully, you know, we're doing, doing a great job um, picking the places where we want to make these measurements so that we can really learn as much as we can with the resources that we have. Because, you know, honestly, 
the outdoor air has traditionally and continues to be very well funded um, for a variety of reasons. And um, it's nice to see some influx of money and for research into the indoor world. Um, but it's going to take some time to, to really develop that knowledge base that, that we have in the outdoor world, basically just because of the funding that has been thrown at that, at that uh, area. It seems like what you're, what home cam and, and some of the work you and others are doing is kind of building a foundation on which that we can build further, you know, learn more. Um, you know, like you say, I, I didn't think of it that way, but the, the test home is in Austin, Texas and the, the weather there is, you know, it is what it is. Uh, just like we, we used to hear complaints, not complaints, but just uh, concerns that a lot of the early research in indoor air quality was done in the Scandinavian countries in, in a cold climate that, you know, how does that apply to Miami, Florida or Houston, Texas or whatever? Um, so I, I think uh, you bring up a really important point there that, uh, you know, we're just in the infancy on this thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, clip before we go. Any final questions or comments from you? Yeah, just just one, uh, doctor. This thing about finding the uh, tobacco, you know, the, uh, you know, residues, you know, inside a, a vacant building, you know, like in the summer, you know, kind of. I just wonder. You know, they, they may have had workmen in the building, or they may have had. Uh, you know, students in the building. It, it would almost seem to me that maybe someone was vaping in the building or, uh, I don't know, it just seems strange that, you know, it, it would be in the outdoor air and it would get inside. I don't know. I just wondered whether you did any, uh, you know, whether you're able to, um, you know, replicate that result. We, yeah, so we the the classroom itself was unoccupied because there weren't classes um but that classroom was on the same hvac hvac zone as a bunch of offices including mine mm-hmm. um and an office that has two pretty heavy smokers in it and so mm-hmm. what we think is happening is they're smoking outside this has been a non-smoking building for 3 decades um and then that residual smoke is coming in on their clothing or perhaps some is penetrating in through windows or cracks in the building facade. Um, but somehow that smoke is getting indoors. We're not seeing any evidence of smoking in the buildings. We're making measurements on a kind of one minute time scale. And if people were smoking, we'd see a big spike in the aerosol concentrations indoors. We would, we would see that very clearly in the data. And we don't see that. It's a really kind of a, a low level, but continual concentration of this residual smoke. Um, and so we just think it's it's either coming in on people's clothing or it's coming in a little bit through open windows or cracks in the building. Um, and that's, that's how once it gets in, it's in. And then because it's a recirculation, recirculating HVAC, this isn't Vegas. You know, what happens in one room goes to all the other rooms on the HVAC. <laughs> um, and so that classroom, while it's unoccupied, is getting the activities of all the other rooms on that, on that zone. Um, and I think that's that's where it's coming from, or at least that's what our, our thoughts are. Thank you. Is it also possible that, uh, you know, 30 years ago when they did smoke in that building, you're still seeing a signature from then? That, that would surprise me. Um, I mean, I think there'd be enough other activities over the course of three decades that would kind of cover that up to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems like it's, it's just gonna, it's, it's too high of a level to be a residual from 30 years ago. Um, okay. and we were able to simulate some of that in the lab and two years later we made similar measurements and still saw that residual tobacco smoke, um, signature in the aerosol. So it wasn't kind of a one-off. We saw it, um, in 2014 and in 2016. Very interesting. And excellent interview. We really appreciate, um, your being here. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Um, I mean, I think, you know, as I mentioned, this is, this is, I'm new to this field and it's been really fascinating to learn and also scary. Um, you know, I never really used to think about the indoor environment as much. And now I think about places I take my kids and, and what I do at home and how that can affect things. Um, but, you know, in this short amount of time, I've learned so much. And I'm really looking forward to, to learning more. And, and the Sloan Foundation has been amazing and injecting money into this area and really getting a lot of us interested in, in pushing forward, I think, the detailed chemistry of what happens indoors. And so I think there's going to be a lot of really cool results coming um, in the next few years. So looking forward to that. 
you know, you mentioned Sloan pushing money into this. Has that been the seed for any other um, interest, any other funding that you hadn't seen before and maybe now they're starting to look at it? I mean, there are low level. I mean, so our actually our, our first study was funded by the National Science Foundation um, to look at the indoor outdoor work and that um, the National Science Foundation does fund some indoor work and indoor chemistry work, um, but not to the level that Sloan has started funding. Um, and so I think the idea and the hope is that this area of research really gets a kickstart from, from what Sloan is doing. Um, and then other funding agencies can also start to become interested as that community grows and as that research um, shows its, its value. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Peter DiCarlo, for joining us today. It was a very interesting and uh, entertaining interview. Very, very much appreciate you taking time to join us on IAQ Radio Plus. I uh, also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. As always, Cliff will be writing a blog, and uh, we'll be sending that out next week. We'll run it by you first before we do. And, of course, my uh, engineer at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Wow, that, that Rusty Amarante show took off last week. Um, very nice downloads on that. And, uh, by the way, I'll be um, – Cliff and I will be taking a break next week. We'll be at the – uh, Healthy Building Summit in Somerset, Pennsylvania. So no show next week. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.